we looked at each other and said, okay, this is the once in a lifetime opportunity. And if we don't do it because we're you know, not bold enough, then uh, we're going to regret that for the rest of our life. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hugo Lovers Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. Today is another really special episode for me because I'm chasing him for, I would say, around two years to talk to me. And it took immense of effort <laughs> and a lot of emails to ask him to jump on the podcast. So I'm happy to announce that today I'm talking to Andreas von Falk, who is the head of the Health and Lifestyles Industry Group. He is a really, really, really good trial lawyer, as I heard. And I was lucky enough to spend some time in Japan with him to experience him in, in action. And Andreas, thank you very much that you're here. If you could give me a quick intro to yourself and give a little bit more background, that would be really helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Julius. It's an honor and a great pleasure to be here. In a nutshell, really, I'm a lawyer. I studied law in Tübingen, Geneva, Switzerland, and uh, Freiburg. I took the bar in early 1995 and then uh, started working in my dad's law firm. And ever since, I've been specializing in patent litigation, increasingly in life sciences patent litigation. I've been doing that, I wouldn't say exclusively, but certainly 60 to 70 percent of my work. The other 30 to 40 percent are in telecoms. I have a little bit of a sort of track record or experience in, uh, in management. I, I managed the IPMT group at the firm for 15 years and uh, was also part of the Hogan Lovells um, management group for a while. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a long time, 27 years in 2022. So um, yeah, looking forward to the conversation with you. Before we dive into your practice and why you do what you do, you already mentioned um, that your dad had a law firm. That Was that one of the major reasons why you decided to study law? It's a great question, Julius. I think the answer is probably threefold. Definitely, you know, I saw my father being a happy lawyer, also a litigator, and that certainly gave me sympathy for the job, but originally I wanted to do something else. I wanted to have a career in the World Health Organization, interestingly. Wow, okay. I, wanted to, I, I was in the business of saving the world, and uh, I, I had always thought that, you know, coming from a, an in, industrialized country, there was a huge responsibility for uh, making medicine, making cures available to um, the, the developing countries. And it, it took me a while to realize that um, a career in the World Health Organization is perhaps not necessarily the best way to do that. I also have some experience working in-house in, uh, at Deutsche Bank, um, which was a great career, but definitely one where I realized that working in an employed position was not really what I wanted. I wanted to be independent. And, and it was clear that being in the law, being a, a lawyer gave you an opportunity to be responsible for yourself and become independent of other people that tell you what to do relatively quicker than in other businesses. I also realized that I wanted to design my own environment in terms of learning, development of associates, etc. And that large institutions like Deutsche Bank didn't lend themselves to that. Too much administration, slow processes, etc. With all respect for Deutsche Bank and I really enjoyed my time there. That was not really what I wanted. I wanted to be independent and, and, and run things rather than be told what to do. 
And then the other aspect is a little bit philosophical, perhaps. In my assessment, um, there's, a, there's a common theme that runs through how human relationships work. Human relationships on a small level and at a large level, like in societies. And I, I've always had a great interest in like sociology, how people work together, you know, what makes societies succeed or fail. And in a sense, it's, the law is almost like the Ten Commandments for religion. The law is what keeps a society together. And then um, once you start doing that, you find those common patterns across whether it's public law, international law, civil law, etc. So that's really something that was has always been very close to my heart. So all the paths led to the law, I think. And then you landed in IP and patents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably because of my dad, I confess. <laughs> And was there already a life sciences connection when you joined your dad's law firm? My dad was a wonderful person and a very talented litigator. He worked a lot and had this hypothesis that when you're a lawyer, um, you have to be able to understand every and any technology that comes in front of you. And if you don't get it, you just have to work harder. And when I started out, I've, I've never had this particular specialization. I just found that my original inclination towards like health, access to health, um, marketing of health products, etc., really lend itself very well to working in the life sciences space. And I was very, very fortunate at the beginning of my career to run into someone who was a very broad-based lawyer in the life sciences industry, Christoph Hiltl, who was a corporate regulatory and IP lawyer, really, and who gave me access to his client base. Without much ado, he just said, look, hey, I'm going to introduce you to my clients and you take it from there. And he did that and I took it from there. And I'm not sure what would have happened had he not done that to me or for me at this very early stage of my career in 2000, 2001. Uh, until then, I'd been a, a generalist in patent litigation, including some trademark work, copyright designs, etc. So that specialization really came through that one introduction that Christoph did for me. And then back in the days, there was the decision to join Hogan, which still was Hogan at that time, right? Actually, it's a bit more complex. My father's firm was independent for five years from when I joined. All right. And in the, uh, the summer of 1999, it turned out that uh, what was then an appeal specialist firm could not continue to exist as it was, as the German legislator had abolished the appeals bar as it was at the time. And we needed to build a new client base because until that time, our clients were other lawyers who had won or lost their first instance cases and needed to pick a, an appeal lawyer who was able to appear in the appeal court and handle their cases for them. So our relationships were with other lawyers. Come or fast forward to 2000, you know, we, we needed real clients. We needed people who hired us in companies and individuals, of course, and We felt that in order to be able to do that, we needed a slightly bigger platform and, um, and were approached by a couple of firms who were interested in developing a patent litigation practice and then interviewed with a couple of really well-known firms and decided to go with uh, the, the relatively least well-known, Bösebeck Trost at the time, which was still a you know, reputable firm, but not Freshfields or Hengela or Gleis Lutz at the time. Uh, but we saw the we saw the potential for developing something that could become really big. We had always had that international aspect to our practice. Uh, a lot of U.S. clients, a lot of Japanese clients, and we felt that with the ability to develop a pan-European at the time practice, 
that was really attractive, not least because Bösebeck uh, Droste at the time was in conversations with Lovells, a very well-established sort of, I would say, second-tier UK-based firm uh, that wanted to become European. And, and so the first merger was actually with Bösebeck Droste in September 1999 and was then followed by the merger between Bösebeck Droste and Lovells um, effective on the 1st of January 2000, which really was among the first, if not the first, pan-European mergers with offices in Paris, London, Germany, and which which really formed the core of uh, what is now the ex-US side of Hogan Lovells. And we very quickly set out to establish IP practices in the Netherlands, in Milan, later in um, in Spain, in Poland, in Moscow. And um, I'm, I'm, for, I'm sure I'm forgetting half of my partners. Apologies for that. That was really the idea. Go international in order to have a single point of contact for our clients. That was the vision and, and it worked out amazingly well. And then the Hogan merger came about in, say, 2008-2009 when we realized that in order to satisfy our clients' needs, we really needed to be global rather than just pan-European. And we also saw that you know some of the U.S. firms were starting to eat our lunch and we started looking for a firm in the U.S. that was sort of equally set up like ours with a, with a strong interest in intellectual property, obviously, but a full-service firm uh, with strong corporate capability as well. And um, had a couple of conversations as a management group and then fell in love at first sight, I must say, with, uh, with what was then Hogan and Hartson, a fantastic firm with, a, with, a st- with strong local roots, Washington-based, not New York-based, extremely nice people. I can only say that. Like when we first met, there was the sympathy across the table in the conference room that continues until today. So I'm, I'm really happy with that decision at the time. It appears that the turnout is quite right. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. But I feel like you haven't answered my questions around how did your focus shift to life sciences? answer that question okay no it's, it's really because i was like i said i was introduced to life sciences clients and i will name okay that was part of the whole introduction that's really what i said at the beginning like the first clients i worked for include merck where they used to work with a with a different firm at the time and i was i was able to speak to the um the general counsel for germany who then introduced me to the IP group in the US. The rest is history. We've handled a lot of cases for Merck. Bristol Myers is one of the earliest clients that I worked for. And from 2001, I established a, a very nice working relationship again with the German General Counsel. And then, you know, other clients started to ask for pitches, initially unsuccessful, I will say. Sharing Plow, who later became part of Merck as well. And over time, once we, we got the first job, we were able to establish ourselves as their permanent advisors, were able to introduce other offices like in the Netherlands, UK, or we would be referred back. Like for instance, Merck had been a client in the UK offices for over a hundred years. That obviously helped with the introduction. And then um, Eli Lilly has been one of my biggest clients for decades now. And um, yeah, that's a separate story, how we got introduced to them. Uh, it's part of, um, I guess, the, the biggest and most important case I've, I ever handled. The other big news, which came out a couple of months ago, that um, with your extensive management background, you decided to take the role as the head of health and lifestyle, which is pretty extensive with the amount of people that are in this industry group. So the question that always thinking about is with a 
extensive practice and a lot of work you already have on your desk. Taking over that role, how are you able to do that? That's another great question. I will say first and foremost, I took the role when it was offered to me because I knew it wasn't going to be a lot of work. <laughs> okay. It sounds a bit counterintuitive when you think about the, the number of lawyers who are involved and the practices and industry sectors that are involved. But the reality is I have four wonderful sector heads in the four sectors that belong into health and lifestyle. We have life sciences, we have consumer, we have education and sports media and entertainment. And each of these sectors is run by either an individual sector head or by a group of sector heads. And therefore, my role is not to run these sectors, but it is to coordinate between the sectors. And what does that involve? Obviously, I stay in close contact with the individual heads. I try to facilitate and make their life easier, basically, um, for their individual sectors by establishing a forum where they, um, where they can exchange information, best practices, look for client opportunities that sometimes don't limit themselves to one sector, but clients don't care about how we categorize them. So I'm trying to make sure that we're offering the right service to clients, irrespective of which primary sector they are affiliated with. I'm trying to make sure that the lawyers at the firm, you know, first and foremost, get involved with the sectors, but then also get a wider perspective around other industry sectors. And I really work with the individual sector heads also on their business plans. So I get involved in lateral hiring, which is amazing. You know, the, the firm produces great talent, but we have to realize that in today's law firm environment, you need to be able to attract lateral hire talent in order to develop and build your practices at a speed that is required in today's environment. It's not enough to wait for the good people to emerge from inside. And I will always say that a good lateral hire expands the reach of the firm and creates new opportunities also for younger lawyers to become partner based on the business that these laterals can generate. So I think that this good sector development strategy needs to go hand in hand with developing your own lawyers and attracting lateral talent from other firms and developing and shaping that story that you need in order to attract others, uh, people at other firms, that's really part of, of my job as well. Again, together with the sector heads who are wonderful and dedicated people. I'm trying to get a hold of them, at least for the life sciences team, the sector heads to talk to me about their role as well. So hopefully that will come this year. We are coming out of two extremely difficult years. And um, we're just facing another severe global crisis. With your extensive background in life sciences and progress doesn't stop, even when we would like to do it from time to time to concentrate on what's going on right now. But what do you think will keep life sciences and the, its industry and your practice in particular busy um, in the next year or two? If it's even possible to say with all the stuff that is going down right now. That's a very relevant comment. I mean, all the stuff that's going on right now is, of course, primarily the COVID crisis, which has been changing the way in which we live and interact for you know, the majority of people in the, around the world. And then uh, secondly, the, the, the global threat to international peace and security through the recent developments between Russia and Ukraine you know, a, one country invading another, that's just such a step change in international relations that cannot be ignored. But at the same time, I think 
those are two examples for where life sciences can really make a difference. Obviously, there's the um, great willingness among our clients to help. Our clients are not just greedy pharma companies like they're <laughs> oftentimes portrayed in the media. No, these are people who are where they are because they come with a desire to help and they need to make money because they need to invest into their future research and into new cures and products. But these crises are examples where our clients, whether it's Pfizer, BioNTech, or whether it's Moderna or others, have really been able to show to the world their dedication to healthcare and to, to making people's lives better. And I will say that our clients are also active in helping the people in Ukraine through millions of different ways, whether it's through collections of money or things that people need, facilitating life for refugees when they arrive in a foreign country. So these are all challenges that the life sciences industry is prepared for. In terms of what that means for our job, the one thing that I see is access to healthcare has become a really important topic. At the beginning of the pandemic, when the vaccines were developed, there was a big criticism and perhaps justifiedly so that a vaccination was, would be made available only to the developed countries where you know, prices are high and where perhaps more money can be made. And I think that was the perception. It's not necessarily true, but it is a, a huge duty of, of our clients and of us to assist with access to medicine for developing and underdeveloped countries. And um, that is something about which I've spoken to a lot of clients. They want to design a system where they can make their products available without, however, third parties benefiting um, from those medications. So sometimes there's a legitimate concern that a medication is made available in a country that where it wasn't previously available, but where other companies then go to that market, purchase the product for reselling in industrialized countries. And uh, that's, a, that's an example of where, you know, you need to put a stop to that. You need to uh, create a system that is that ensures that the product ultimately lands with the patient rather than with another dealer who just uh, tries to sell it for at a, at a profit uh, in another country. That's just an example of the, the problems our clients are facing, and we love to help them with those issues. And then, of course, the other aspect of today's world is the ever-increasing pace of innovation in the area of cancer, in the area of, in particular, neurovascular, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, for instance. We just see, you know, step changes in the way in which medication is made available. 10, 15 years ago, an oncologist would have said that you cannot cure cancer. You can only help the patient maybe survive a couple of months or years longer manage the pain and sort of live through the disease with the patient until they die of the disease. And that is just no longer true. There has been a, a change in paradigms in the treatment of cancer and that with the new biotech products that are based on immunology rather than chemistry, you can actually cure patients and an increasing number of diseases or cancers can now be cured. And it's obvious that you know more treatments will follow and an increasing number of cancers can be treated successfully. That's just amazing. And of course, that innovation leads into patents. And that's when we come in. So it's not getting quiet for the next couple of years. Not in the foreseeable <laughs> future. That's good. In the first part of the interview, I'm always covering the basic. So to make sure everyone knows you and you can give a little bit of background and um, a little bit of an outlook. 
But the second part is always around your personal experiences and I would say a little bit of mindset. We travel together. I've seen you in a a lot of conversations and how I experienced you, I always felt like you have emphasized on building a personal relationship to people. Is this key of your success? That you're able to relate to everyone who you who you work yeah. with. Is this something you focus on when you're building out relationship and building out your business? Yeah, it goes back to your first question about how I see the world and why I became a lawyer. Um, in order for a society to function, it is my strong view that you need to focus on the other what I call an ultra-centric view of the world, put the other at the center of what you do and how you communicate. And so, like you say, when I am in a conversation, I try to find out what the other person expects from the conversation rather than focusing on what I want from the conversation. And the result of that is that the other person feels taken seriously, they will speak openly, and that gives me a better ability to understand their needs. And so for any service provider, I think, It's not about what you want. It's about what the other person needs. And the second aspect of that is I try to be as direct as the respective culture allows. And I don't try to spend too much time with things that don't really matter. So I try to get straight to the point. And people appreciate that. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah. And so I think clients really like that when you put them at the focus of everything you do. It sounds a bit like a slogan, but that's yeah, that's what we do. And I, I try to train my associates in the same way. So in my interactions with the associates, I put them at the focus of the conversation. And I think they learn and appreciate that style and, um, and see that it can lead to success because you establish a relationship with your client or with the other person, whoever that happens to be. Really, in, really insightful. And I feel like that's that the way it should go all the time. So you as a litigator, and you teased it already a bit, which of your matters stands out in your impressive career? And what in particular stuck or changed your path? I think for any successful litigator, you need a milestone case, something that really sticks out. And ideally, at an early stage in your career, Obviously, that's not something you can manage, but I will say that when you handle many cases, ultimately, there will be that one case that stands out. And for me, there was a case for Eli Lilly on their anti-schizophrenia medicine, uh, Olanzapin. And what happened was that we pitched for the matter when it was um, wasn't litigious in Germany and didn't get it. <laughs> and another firm was hired and they took the case on. And I was really angry because I felt I had well prepared, but the the client told us later, they thought uh, we were too young and too inexperienced. That was in 2004, 2005. And then as the trial approached the validity trial, so the client had to defend the validity of its patent, they were looking for counsel for the mock trial. So for someone to represent the other side's view And we did that. And at the end of the mock trial, the mock judge ruled in our favor. And as a result, the client came to us and said, can you represent us at the trial? That poor counsel. They got crushed. I and the, and the colleagues I was working with, and I was working with a, with a good friend and very talented bio-patent attorney, Gregor Koenig, who I actually went to kindergarten with <laughs> and uh, who's, a, who's a great friend still, although he's not at the same firm. And we looked at each other and said, okay, This is the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. 
and if we don't do it because we're you know not bold enough then we're going to regret that for the rest of our lives and so it was uh, like one o'clock in the morning in a hotel room in munich we decided to take the matter on with very little preparation time and invested like day and night into the preparation of the trial and lost <laughs> which was very depressing uh, we managed to sort of delay the, the the inevitable outcome for a couple of months the client was really happy with the performance at the trial so we got the decision appealed it and in the interim the generic companies started to enter the market with generic olanzapine product and uh, the client's margin deteriorated and so we took our revoked patent and started to enforce that by way of a preliminary injunction once the um, generics had entered and everybody said we were crazy. But the Dusseldorf Court of Appeal actually grant, ultimately ended up granting the preliminary injunction based on a patent that had previously been revoked and that was under appeal because they found that there was no reasonable basis for the revocation and that the Supreme Court on appeal would with 100% likelihood reinstate the patent. And that's exactly what happened. But for any judge to be so bold to be able to predict the appeal decision at the federal Supreme Court, that was amazingly bold, I must say. And that gained us a lot of visibility in the market when that decision came out. And until today, it is and remains the only preliminary injunction that was ever granted in Germany based on a revoked patent. So you made your way into the history books of some kind. <laughs> I wouldn't say history books, but uh, you know, it was it was noticed and uh, people talked about it, and uh, there was a in the legal circles at least. In the legal circles, there was a little bit of publicity around that. <laughs> yeah. Looking back, that major case and the other work you've done over the—did you envision your career path going down that way? I always wanted to be a successful litigator. I love the courtroom work. I love to fight for the clients and. So in a way, you can't plan for success, but in terms of what I do now, that's exactly what I wanted. That's the best answer I could get. Wow. Coming back to not, not work-related questions, more likely. I know that partners in big law firms have an incredible work ethic and a lot of hours, but work-life balance is getting bigger and bigger. The juniors or the associates and counsel trying to kind of juggle work and life and make sure they don't spend too much time at the desk so how do you take time off and would you maybe in retrospect be able to adjust one or two screws back in the days to spend more time with the family for example or whatever you enjoy when you're not sitting and reading emails or screaming at each other in a courtroom <laughs> I think nobody has complained, as they say, um, on their deathbed that they didn't work hard enough, but many will say that they should have spent more time with their families. For me, I've always enjoyed my work, so working a lot wasn't a big thing. And then you know, I can also really take time off. I can, I can seriously take time off, forget about work. And I think that's always been something that's kept me sane and alive is the ability to just sort of lock out anything that's work-related and spend two or even three weeks of summer holiday without looking at email or you know, just responding to phone calls when it's really urgent. But I think there's no way around working hard. However, having said that, at Hogan Lovells, we do appreciate that people have other priorities in their lives as well. So our agile working approach is a reflection of the fact that we want people to stay healthy, happy, and sane throughout their careers. And I will say that 
of our associates, I would say at least 50% have alternative work arrangements. So they, they work from home, but they also work like 50, 60, 70, or 80% of uh, the 100% hours goals. And I've heard more than once that people say, this is fantastic. Uh, we love it that the firm allows for that. And it's probably the reason why I'm staying at the firm, because I have a young child or I have three young children or whatever, and I need to be able to spend time with them while they're awake, because you know, what's the benefit of coming home at 10 and leaving at seven and you know never seeing anyone in your family? They want to build relationships. They want to be good uh, mothers and fathers. And I'm extremely proud of the firm that it, we have managed to allow those arrangements and it works it, it does work because people are really serious about their work they do stick to their deadlines they handle their cases and um, i think happier lawyers are more likely to stay um, and to become happy partners so for me i grew up at a time when you didn't have to do 2000 hours and so that was never a problem for me while i was an associate and then after that i made my own decisions what can i say <laughs> They, they were definitely oftentimes in favor of work rather than the family. But like I said, when you are with the family, it's important what you make of that time. And I feel that I've always been there, available, accessible. And um, my family is the one thing that that's kept me healthy. Really looking forward to coming home has always been a big driver for me. I've, um, this is this has always been the, the fulfillment of my day when I when I come home, see the kids, family, my wife. I appreciate that answer. Thank you very much. Um, but are there any hobbies you can share with me? Anything aside from like spending time with the family? And I'm so glad you're asking that question, Julius. <laughs> I, I would not have had an answer to that uh, half a year ago. But, um, you know, I do, I do sports a lot. I, I cycle. Uh, I run. But is, is that a hobby? I would, especially with a busy day. Uh, and like yours, I think it's yeah, it's it's great. It's a, it's a, helps you to wind down, yeah. right? Um, but it's it's not exactly a hobby. Like you know, when I put on my running shoes, I feel a certain amount of sort of inspiration, and I I love to to start the run. But I, I'm not I'm not a passionate runner. It's it's something that's useful for me. But I resumed my cello playing just a couple of weeks ago, and I really love that. It's such a wonderful way of completely emptying your brain of anything that's work-related. It's just focusing on the notes in front of you, hitting the right note on your on your cello, and um, producing beautiful music. I, I'm not. I don't say I'm there. I must say that the reality is that I'm struggling, <laughs> but I, I struggle on ever higher levels, I would say. And so um, I, I'm currently um, studying a sonata, which is uh, played together with, um, with a piano. And I've, I've um, motivated one of my neighbors to study the piano piece. And so in a, in a couple of weeks, we'll start to, um, to, to play together, rehearse together. And I really look forward to that. And so that's my, that's my, my biggest new hobby, I must say, and one that I really, really enjoy. That's beautiful. That's really cool. Music is always a thing that keeps me sane and just where I can just wind down. We are coming to an end of this conversation, but I always like to close the conversations um, with some wisdom. And obviously, you just said 27 years in. What would be your three essential tips for aspiring lawyers on how to navigate the world of big law? 
wisdom from me. I don't feel like I'm the right person, but you always share wisdom with me when we talk to each other. Come on. What three things? There's no way around hard work, whether it's at 70, 80 or 90% or 100%. Working hard, be serious about the work and try to always handle everything that you do as if your own life depended on it. I think that's good advice. Don't take things lightly. But that's almost understood. But sometimes, you know, it's, it, it helps to, to think about how you can use your time efficiently. And I will say that part of the hard work is always taking time to reflect, look at what you're doing, uh, things you can improve and get feedback on, on what you do. Many lawyers, many young lawyers in particular, don't talk enough to other people and um, they miss opportunities for feedback and for development. Work on your brand. Use every opportunity to get the spotlight. <laughs> and I appreciate it's becoming more and more difficult because, you know, there's just so many lawyers, so many events. Try to speak where you can. Try to write where you can. Uh, try to get in front of people when you have a choice. Don't leave the stage to others unless you don't have a choice. But look for the spotlight. And then finally, be demanding. Be demanding of your environment. Ask for the opportunity to get in front of the client rather than, you know, staying at home and just doing the work that is put on your table. Demand that feedback that the partners and your colleagues owe you and try to implement that. Ask the right questions. Like, why didn't you like that brief rather than just accepting that it wasn't so good? And that's the, the aspect of being demanding, I think, is, is very important. It has to be supported by hard work, obviously, and doing the right things. But if you don't ask, you won't get it. And so that's probably the most important thing. Try to actively manage your career rather than letting other people decide about what's going to happen to you. I think that's the perfect ending of this conversation. Andreas, thank you for letting me hang for two years. I think the <laughs> result is awesome. <laughs> thank you for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you, Julius. Uh, it's always nice to reflect about the things that you've learned over a long career and um, your questions were good and I've enjoyed the time with you. Thank you very much as well. All right, that's it for today. If you have further questions about Andreas' career or additional insight, you'll find his bio linked in the show notes, as well as all the links where we are sharing information about legal developments in the life sciences and healthcare sector. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so because we're going to have incredible guests over the next couple of months and it would be a pity if you'll miss out on that. As always, we're going to hear each other in about two weeks. Thank you for tuning in and talking for Cure.